0: You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, good morning. It is good to be here, I'm filling in for Ross, who's in Israel, coming back this week, but uh, If you've been here a little while, you know that every time I preach, you get to hear yet another Hager family story. So today is no exception. I wouldn't want to disappoint. But how about this phrase, parents? Have you heard this before? That's not fair. Every parent of kids old enough to speak has heard this phrase probably too many times to count. For those of you with small children who maybe don't speak or who are on the cusp of learning to speak, they'll learn to say dada and mama and that's not fair, probably in that order if you're lucky. As the father of six kids spread between ages 8 to 19, I promise you I've heard those words more than I care to share, care to remember, as hard as Serena and I have tried to be fair and consistent. So as I was getting ready to deliver this sermon, I needed an illustration for fairness. And so uh, I nervously sent the kids a group text, which is, of course, how you communicate with your kids today. And I wasn't really sure I wanted to hear the answer. And if I were honest, what I was secretly hoping was that it would be something Serena had done that was not fair that I could share. Um, But so I sent the text and then waited for my phone to blow up. And mercifully, they only came up with one example. And it, it was an example that I felt so personally justified in being unfair by their standards that I agreed that I would share it with you today. So here it is. Um, Dad, it's not fair when Lucy hits Joe, and Joe hits her back, and you get more mad at Joe than you do Lucy. And they're both here in this service here today, and if if they were to stand up, you would see that Lucy is 10 and Joe is 14. Joe is also a boy. He's probably 18 inches taller than she is and outweighs her by 70 pounds. So yes, I do get more upset with Joe, even if Lucy was the first one to violate the no-hitting rule. Now, I know you're shocked that my kids aren't perfect. And that they've actually hit each other at least once each month. <laughs> but why is that so common? Not Hager kids hitting each other, that's obviously bad parenting. But the reaction, that's not fair. For most of us, even as adults, it's because, it's not because we have this internal justice meter that intrinsically weighs the inherent justice in every situation and every action. It's because we're constantly comparing ourselves to somebody else. We compare waistlines, we compare heights, we compare how nice a car someone has, how big a truck someone has, we compare houses, vacations... We certainly compare kids, their behavior in restaurants, their grades, their SAT scores, where we went to college, where our kids go to college, and it's East Texas, so let's get real here. Maybe we compare how many guns we own. I really don't know. Or how big a fish we've caught, seven and a half pounds. Or the deer we just shot yesterday morning, eight points. And I kid you not, so I shot the biggest deer of my life yesterday morning. This morning, I got a text from Drew Boring, and you know what? His deer was bigger than mine. (laughs) Totally not excited about the biggest deer of my life now, just because Drew sent me that text this morning. We are constantly comparing ourselves, not to some invisible, universally agreed upon standard, like, Oh, he looks good. He must be at his recommended weight. No, what we say is, gosh, his belly's smaller than mine. Or maybe the other way around. At least my belly's not as big as his belly is. We are constantly comparing ourselves to others. And it's not just outside the church. We do it here in the church. Most of the things I mentioned probably have already happened here this morning. But here's an example of a spiritual activity where comparison invades and can totally ruin it. So someone in a Bible study or a life group who hypothetically talks too much. Not that there's a universally agreed upon standard for the right amount of talking in small group. But that standard is exactly how much that I talk, which is the perfect amount of talking i'm the standard and before you know it you've completely tuned that person out wondering why they're so inconsiderate that you miss what you really needed to hear to be able to minister to that person now the disclaimer here if you've been in life group with me and there's a couple of you in here who have or bible study that's just something that i've heard other people talk about it never happened in our group It's just something that I've read about in small group books that pastors read. It certainly wasn't you and it wasn't me. The great theologian Teddy Roosevelt once said, Comparison is the thief of joy. And for the most part, I think T.R. was right, that comparison leads to discontent, it leads to envy, and that envy steals joy. And if you're like me, you don't walk around with this great surplus of joy that you can afford to just waste it on comparing yourself to others. I could always use more joy, more gratitude, and more peace. And that's what our parable today is about. It's the dangers of comparison. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 20, verse 1, click or however you're going to get there, Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16, and we'll continue our series called Jesus Stories, which looks at a different parable each week that Jesus is told, and this week is the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And while you're getting there, let me give you a preview of how we'll spend the rest of our time here together first I'll set some context about this parable then we'll look at how the original audience would have understood its meaning back then then we'll look at what this parable teaches us that is always true about God or us and then finally what the implications of that truth are for us today so context then always and now So follow along with me as I read from Matthew 20, beginning in verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them, he said, you go into the vineyard too. The owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, The last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for Denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Matthew records this parable as Jesus and his disciples are heading up to Jerusalem for Passover. Chapter 21 of Matthew describes the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So here in chapter 20, Jesus knows... He's ending; he's beginning the final stage of His earthly ministry. Back in chapter 19, we see really the keys to understanding this parable. The middle of chapter 19 is the encounter between Jesus and the rich young ruler, who the young ruler says, what, you know, I've done everything the law demands since I was a youth. What more must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, good for you. If you would be perfect... Go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Then Jesus talks about the dangers of riches, which we really don't like to talk about, so I'll skip that part. And then in verse 27, Peter says, See, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? So Peter looks at Jesus, the Son of God, who stepped out of heaven, took on flesh, and says, I hope you're impressed with our sacrifice. And since we're talking about rewards, what are we going to get? So our parable today is actually part of Jesus' answer to that question. How do rewards work in the kingdom of God? But immediately after Peter's question, Jesus gives him a promise. You, the apostles, you will sit on a throne and judge the 12 tribes of Israel, which is pretty cool. Everyone whose sacrifice gets a hundredfold more. Sounds good. Then chapter 19 ends in verse 30 with, but many who are first will be last and the last first which is very similar to how he ends the parable we're studying today. So, just as a reminder, the original inspired manuscripts didn't have chapter breaks, and they didn't have verse numbers. So I think it's best if we took everything from Peter's question through the end of this parable as one section. That's the context for this parable. So this parable has three movements or sections, if you will. The first is the hiring then you have the pain, and then you have the rebuking. The hiring is the first seven verses. So let's move quickly through here. We'll identify some characters as we move along, make some observations, and then explain how the original audience would have understood the meaning of this parable. So verse 1, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. So the identity of the master is God. That's not a hard stretch for us. And his vineyard is the earth. Not Israel as it is in other parables and some commentators said. But just like there is today, the master went to the place in town where the day laborers would gather so that someone would come to hire them. And the wage he agrees to with these first workers who he hires before 6 in the morning is they'd work for a denarius which was the standard daily wage for a soldier or for a household servant but a day laborer is a couple of steps below kind of the economic ladder than those folks so this wage would have been perceived by those workers as a very generous a more than fair wage So the first of the five groups of workers gets hired by the master, they head to the vineyard, and they're later joined by later workers at 9, 12, and 3, and finally at 5 p.m. These workers would symbolize believers who came after the original disciples, who would have been the first workers. The wages aren't specifically set for the later workers, The master just tells them in verse 4 that he will do what is right, which means they would likely expect to get a proportionate share of a day's wage, consistent with the amount of time that they have worked. These workers trust the master to do the right thing. So that's kind of the hiring. The next movement is the pain, which starts in verse 8. At the end of the workday, which would have been 6 p.m., the owner has the foreman collect all the workers together and pay them, which is what Leviticus 19.3 and Deuteronomy 24.15 direct, because these day laborers are living hand to mouth, and if you don't pay them, they don't eat. Their families don't eat. So he starts with the ones who'd only worked an hour, and they receive a full day's wage, one denarius. And he does this in front of the other workers, in their presence, full knowledge. Verse 10 tells us the workers who who were hired first believe at this point that they're going to get much more than the one denarius. Maybe even proportionally as many as 12 for their work. But as the foreman goes down the line, everyone gets the same amount. It's kind of like a sports team that wins a championship. Like if you're old, and you can remember when the Cowboys last won the Super Bowl, it doesn't matter whether you were on the practice squad all year long and never saw the field, or you were Troy Aikman. When they won the Super Bowl, you got the same ring that Troy did. So that's kind of the pain part of the parable. All good so far, now we go... To the fun part, the rebuking. Look at verse 11. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master. The Greek word here for grumbling is the same one the Septuagint uses to describe the grumbling of the people of Israel as they wandered through the wilderness, grumbling against Moses and against God. And here's their complaint. You've made the later workers equal to us. Even though we worked all day and we worked in the tougher conditions. Notice what they're comparing. Not did they get what they negotiated, which was what they felt was a fair wage at the time they were hired. They compared themselves to someone else and became jealous. Look, they don't say that they should have been paid more, which I'm sure that's what they believe. What they said, though, was that the master had made the other workers equal to them, even though they worked harder and longer. You can almost hear those workers say, that's not fair. So how does the master respond? Verse 13, he addresses one of the first workers, friend, I am doing you no wrong. He's paid them a generous wage just like he promised and just like they agreed. Verse 14, he says, I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. The master here is free and sovereign to pay no less than what he's promised, but much more than he's obligated to. And then the master says, Or do you begrudge my generosity? Which actually literally is, is your eye evil, which is a Hebrew idiom for jealousy. So these first workers are jealous of the later workers. And then Jesus ends the parable in verse 16 with the saying, So the last will be first, and the first last, which I believe is Jesus wrapping up this entire section. It actually goes back to the rich young ruler his statement about rich people and camels, which we're not going to talk about, and his promise to the disciples of their future reward. And so I take verse 16 to be a general concluding statement about the radical difference between the economy or the way of the kingdom of man versus the kingdom of God. The old rules about reward don't apply. They've been replaced with both justice and generosity. The success criteria have changed, and those who appear to be winning now are likely losing. Those who appear to be losing, who are picked last, those are the real winners. So that's the third movement, the rebuking. So what did the original audience believe this parable meant back then? Well, specifically, I think Peter and the other disciples heard back in 19 that they were going to receive great rewards. But here, this parable, Jesus is telling them that they shouldn't compare themselves to others. Focusing on what the rewards of service are, but to trust in both the fairness and the generosity of the Master. It's a similar message that Jesus gives to Peter at the end of John 21 where Peter is asking about another disciple, how long he's going to live. And Jesus says, what is it to you? You follow me. So that was how the original audience understood it back then. So how about what does this parable teach us that is always true about God or us? Let's start with God, the master. One of the interpretive rules of dealing with parables is you look for what is exaggerated. You look for what is unusual, and that is the point of the parable. So when you look at this parable, there are two unusual aspects, and both of them relate to the master. The first is the number of times the master goes out to hire workers, five times in the course of one day. So there could be a couple of explanations here. Maybe the master is really bad at running a business. And he keeps underestimating the amount of work in the harvest. I don't think that's the case. Or maybe he's just impatient. He's in a hurry and he wants the harvest done now. And so he keeps going back and finding more workers. I don't think that's it either. Or maybe the main point of this parable is not about the business skill of the master, but it's his concern and generosity towards the workers. We know that's the testimony of Scripture, that God loves us. He continually seeks after us. In fact, when you look at this, I think the ESV got it wrong. The title of this parable isn't the laborers or the workers in the vineyard it should be the extravagant master that's the main point of this parable so this parable both by the master's action but then also by his words as a response to the grumbling of workers highlights three attributes of god the first is his justice he pays what he negotiated with the workers he tells them i'm doing you no wrong and then he hires the later workers What he tells them is that he will do what is right. Our God keeps his promises, his covenants. Our God is just. The second attribute is sovereignty. The master owns the vineyard. He's the one who hires the workers. He hires extra workers at his own initiation. And when it comes time to pay the workers, he chooses the order. He asked the grumbling workers rhetorically, "Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me?" I had a seminary professor who used to say, "You're either sovereign or you're not. There's no mostly sovereign. It's an all-or-nothing- type deal. A tiny bit not sovereign means wholly not sovereign. He chooses. He freely initiates. He freely rewards. He's not obligated to us based on our actions. We don't manipulate or appease him to obligate or bind him in any way. God is sovereign. He's just. He's sovereign. And God is generous. He hired more workers than He needed. He paid them more than He had to. And He continued to go back and hire more. And go back. Even as the day came to a close in the 11th hour. And then even He says, the reason He pays all the workers the same is because He's generous to the later workers. He's just sovereign. He's generous. Now what does this parable teach us that is always true about mankind? For starters, it's better to be a later worker than an early worker, right? And That's obvious. Not because they don't have to work as long or as hard as the earlier workers, but because they are the greater recipients of God's generosity. Who do you think at the end of the day is more loyal to this master who loves the master more, who should be more motivated to work for him in the future. It's the ones who are the greater recipients of his generosity, the later workers. Unlike PE in elementary school, when you're choosing teams for dodgeball, it is okay to be the last one chosen here. The second reason... It's better to be the later worker, you don't want to be a grumbler. We see the pattern here compare yourself to others, become envious of them, discontent with your circumstances. And now it's really a short move from why me to why God? Grumbling to the sovereign God of the universe, that's not fair. You know, it might be easy to criticize these first workers, but they're a great reminder to us about how expectations can quietly and invisibly sneak in. And in doing so, lead to entitlement, to broken relationships, to bitterness, and a loss of joy. So how does that work? I started by saying today that comparison was the thief of joy. Well, the byproduct of comparison is entitlement. And by that I mean there are two different objects of comparison. Comparison of others or comparison of your situation against the situation you feel you deserve. The first workers compared themselves to the last workers who got paid a full day for one hour of work, which caused them to feel they deserved more compensation than they had already agreed to. That's entitlement. So here's an example of entitlement. True story. I was 15 years old, had no money saved for a car, and one Friday afternoon, my dad comes home from work driving a 1968 Red Mustang. He tosses me the keys and says, this is for you. The dealer's gonna let you drive it all weekend, and if you like it, and I could tell by looking at it, of course I liked it. He goes, Well, take it to the mechanic on Monday, get it checked out, and you can keep it. And I was totally blown away. I had no expectation that I was gonna get a car, let alone a classic sports car, maybe one of the coolest cars ever made in the history of automotives. And as I drove around Tyler that weekend, you know that I thought that was a game changer for Fritz Hager. Life was going to be better in Tyler in that red Mustang. So I drove the car to the mechanic first thing on Monday, and I was about half a mile away out on 155, and boom, the transmission fell out of the bottom of the car. Called a tow truck. Towed it to back to the dealer, and that was the last time I ever saw that car. Next week, scene repeats itself. Except this time my dad brings home a 1977 Dodge 150 Adventurer pickup truck. That was uh, how should I say this, not a red Mustang. <laughs> I referred to it as uh, urinal yellow with a tan side panel with an awesome eight-track tape player and a nice character-building dent on the side of the truck. Now, a week before, I hadn't expected a nice car. No one had promised me any such thing. But after three days in a red Mustang, it wasn't that it was unjust. It was just that my expectations for what was fair to me had changed, And I was very disappointed with that truck because I'd come to believe wrongly that I was entitled to something better. And here's why expectations can be so dangerous. The disappointment in not having that expectation met leads to bitterness. I had more sense than to say it out loud to my parents, but in my mind, I was saying... That's not fair. I grumbled about my parents when, in fact, I should have been grateful to them. They bought me a car that I couldn't afford and let me use it. And that's the same thing we see in the parable here. The first workers should have been grateful that they'd received a very generous wage and that they had the opportunity to work that day and provide for their family. Instead, after they... Compared themselves to the first workers, their expectation changed. And they felt they were entitled to more than they actually were, robbing them the joy of work and damaging their relationship with the master. So what does that mean for us now? I want to drill down and look at two implications for us comparing ourselves to others. Or comparing our circumstances to the circumstances we think we deserve. That sense of entitlement. I think we make two great errors in comparison. And those errors make all the difference. At least difference if you're interested in real peace in the face of adversity. Real joy in the face of suffering. Because there's actually one form of comparison that does not steal joy, but enables it. The first error is we compare against the wrong standard. It's a standard based on others or a standard based on us. It is a standard of our own making. And here's where I see that played out in our community. In Tyler, Texas. In East Texas. This is a community we commonly refer to as a Christian community. But if you dig below the surface with people, if you have real conversations, real spiritual conversations, and you ask people hard questions, like why do you think God will let you into His heaven? You'll find out that Tyler's not as Christian as you think. Because the answer to that question more often than not goes something like this. Well, I've tried to be good and I think I've done more good than bad as if the standard is some cosmic scale of justice that as long as the good even just slightly outweighs the bad you're okay, eternal life. Or if based off your own standard, it tips the other way, you don't want to talk about that. Maybe there's some of you here today that feel that same way. But friends, I'm here to tell you you're using the wrong standard. And your standard won't get you there. The only standard that is good enough for the Master is the perfection that Jesus offers. And we cannot achieve that perfection on our own. It is impossible. But the Master who is just is also generous. He is gracious. And He's made a way, the only way, which is through faith in His Son, Jesus. Faith or trust in Jesus' perfection, not how you measure up to your own standard. The standard is His obedience, not ours. And that's what makes peace with God possible. The only way to real peace, real joy, is comparing ourselves to Jesus. All other objects of comparison lead to envy and jealousy And bitterness. You know, the second error, which I think is more common among believers, is that we compare against the wrong perspective. And by that I mean temporally. We see only our current circumstances, the here and the now, and we lose sight of two different times on both ends of the spectrum. The first is we fail. To look back at the cross, to look back to see God's justice, His sovereignty, and His grace personified in Jesus of Nazareth, who freely and lovingly met the impossible standard of perfection that we could never achieve by living a perfect, sinless life and in His death taking the penalty for our sin, paying the price that we could not pay. Looking back to the cross causes us to appreciate our current circumstances, to see our great need for a Savior, to see how generous the Master has been to us, and then responding with work and with gratitude for the generosity that we've received from Him. Look just past this parable at verse 18 and 19 in Matthew 20 and compare yourself to Jesus here where he says, And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn Him to death, and deliver Him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And He will be raised on the third day. The cross is the great antidote. It's the cure to the disease of grumbling. It is the great antidote. Equalizer. The other time we should look to to compare our current circumstances is to look forward to that day when the kingdom of God is fully manifested, fully realizes. When Jesus returns and everything is made right. When there is no more war, there is no more terrorist attacks, there is no divorce, there is no abuse, there is no cancer. There are no tears for the rest of eternity. And in that day, all the suffering and sacrifice, as Jesus has promised, is repaid a hundredfold. And to recognize that today, this month, this year, and yes, even our entire earthly life, is just a speck of time we have an eye on eternity. So you ask, life's not fair? You're right, life is not fair. But who wants fair? I want grace. I need grace. Because through faith in Jesus, grace is much better than fair. It's grace because God's just a man... We're satisfied in Jesus so that he could be generous to us. He has been, and he is, and he always will be. Let's pray.